you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. A few weeks ago, you were talking about cat urine, and you had said professionals use white vinegar. Do you know how much she would use of vinegar to water? We built a home 20 years ago and thought we were putting in the best windows at that time, but ever since we've had leaking of air around and under the window. Is there anything we can do? I recently had a water softener installed, Okay. and my daughter now complains that the water doesn't taste as good. Do you have a question? about your home inside or out call ken the contractor hi everybody welcome to another hour with ken the contractor i'm jim Britt, along with ken patterson and ken the contractor and he's here each week at this time to answer the questions that are important to you today's homeowner there's a couple different ways that you can participate in the program you can give ken a call you can always reach him at 800-614-2975 that's 800-614-2975 or you can forward your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. When we buy appliances, TV sets, refrigerators, it doesn't really matter today. Almost anything we buy has a little card inside it called a registration card. It'll have the serial number of the particular product, the purchase date, and it's going to ask you for a whole bunch of information, some of which you may find a little too personal to send back. And for many reasons... Folks, just don't send those back. Another reason we don't send them back is because if you've done it before, you know you have a tendency to get what a lot of us will call junk mail. It's marketing, and that's the reason the manufacturers collect this data is for marketing purposes. But there's some things you need to know about this that can help eliminate some home fires and some home safety issues. First and foremost, you do not have to answer all the questions on those cards. I want you to be aware of that. I want you to register these appliances, especially if these are household appliances that plug into the wall and have the potential for an electrical short or can cause a fire, something of that nature. You simply need to provide the information of where it's addressed, where it's actually installed, and your name, but you don't need to answer all those other questions about age and income and where you work and the various other things that most of us, again, find too personal. But if you don't register the equipment, you may have a scenario develop as this lady did, and I was reading an article some time ago out of a Colorado publication, and this cropped up, which caused me to say this is one more reason for us to talk about registering our appliances. And this article, and I'll paraphrase this, this lady was on the phone in her kitchen when she noticed her two burners on her fairly new smooth stovetop were actually on high. They had come on. They were glowing. And she thought that was odd because she couldn't remember having them on at all. When she went to turn it off, she noticed the knobs were already in the off position. These two heating elements had come on on their own. Nothing was on top of the stove based on what I read about this. <clears throat> Finally, she was able to turn it off only by going to the breaker box because the controls on the stove were not responding when she turned this off. Now, had she not been at home, this could have easily been a fire. The other thing she noted in the, what I read about this is that it continued to get hotter and hotter, and she talked to appliance people later, and they said, yes, this can happen. Even though there are thermostats or settings that control the high heat on an electric stovetop, in this case, apparently that was being exceeded, and it was just continuing to glow and get hotter and hotter. Had she not turned it off, no doubt there would have been a fire. What she went on to acknowledge to many people that talked with her about this is that uh, she never registered that particular appliance. And she found out as she got into it with appliance service personnel 
that had she registered that, she would have been notified by the manufacturer in 2009 that there was a recall on this particular product, that there were some issues with the controls where this could come on by itself, and it was a fire and a safety hazard. And that's one of the reasons, this is just a small example, and I've read other cases around the country where similar events have taken place. This is just one case. There are more than 15 million appliances, I will tell you, that are recalled across this nation every single year. I said 15 million. I didn't say 1,000. That's a lot, and they can be for minor items. And this information doesn't come from me. This comes from the ConsumerReports.org, which is an organization that compiles years of data collected on their website, and they publish this information. Now, the federal government, as we know, has a watchdog group that tends to stay after everything from appliances to clothing, electronics, household items, furniture, cars, you name it. And when there is a recall issued, then the manufacturer is required to contact everyone they can that made a purchase of this product. If you haven't registered, you won't know. Now, for those of you that are sitting back somewhat alarmed right now saying, I've never registered anything in my life, how do I know that I don't have a recall going on or an issue or something that I should be dealing with? Well, first, if the government mandates it, the manufacturer is supposed to notify everybody in their database. If you're not there, they can't notify you. But secondly, many manufacturers, and I think from the research I've done, in cases there are more recalls of products by manufacturers direct than by the federal government. I can't statistically prove that. That's just based on the general reading that I've done, tracking things in my industry. But they will contact folks as well, whether it happens to be a food product or an appliance, that there may be a glitch, there may be need to be a service uh, repair order written on this, and sometimes it's a matter of replacing a very simple part. It may be replacing something that they send a service person out on, or it could be as simple as a a bad filter, and they send you a filter and you put it in because you're normally changing the filters anyway. So these are some very simple things for us to deal with. But I want to give you a site to go to that may be very beneficial if you're sitting back saying, I'm afraid that I may have missed some of these, and that is recalls, R-E-C-A-L-L-S, dot gov, www.recalls.gov. Now, this is a government website where you will find recalls that have been issued on products for some period of time, again, dealing with everything from appliances to sports equipment, children's products, outdoor items, lighting. If you name it, if there's a recall on it, you should find it on this government website. Again, that is recalls, R-E-C-A-L-L-S dot gov, and this will be posted on my website at kenthecontractor.com. Now, the last thing you want to do is be involved in any type of fire hazardous situation. So think about registering these, and that would include refrigerators, TV sets, anything you have that plugs into the wall that could possibly short out, have a defective cord on it, something that may have a filter in it that needs to be changed. You don't want to have water issues or flooding problems if there are issues, and we've seen that with dishwashers, which happen to lead the recalls in the appliance side of the industry. About half of the appliances, I mentioned 15 million over the years, but about half of the appliances that were recalled were dishwashers. And I've experienced this problem personally as a builder, pulling brand new items out of the box, plugging them in, tying the plumbing in, firing up to go in test mode, only to find that water is all over the floor and there's nothing wrong with what the plumber connected. It can be internal gaskets, plastic parts, other issues on dishwashers that are leaking. That can cause severe damage to hardwood floors and other areas. So by registering your appliances, you'll find that you'll get this feedback, this information that will come to you from the manufacturers on any recall, and it will keep you safe. One last pointer. 
on these electronic cooktops, the smooth surface tops, if you don't engage the lock on that and you've got youngsters or just yourself and you play something up there, I've seen this happen recently with a home fire. You've got an opportunity to turn that on and you don't even know it. And whatever's sitting on top can go up in smoke as well as your house. I have a friend of mine that just went through this not too long ago and it was a pretty disastrous fire over something that was very innocent. So pay attention to all of these electrical and electronic devices that are heat producing. Another reason to register too, can it affect your warranty also? It can. And we've talked about that as a separate segment, but if you don't register and you have a warranty problem, they will not recognize that appliance and you will not get warranty service. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's here every week at this time to answer questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. Also, don't forget, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you've got a question for Ken, you can always reach him at our contact number. And that number is 800-614-2975 or send your emails to KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Important cancer alert. Welcome back. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson. And this is Ken the Contractor. A house is what you build. A home is what you make it. Ken is here each week answering the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. You can always reach Ken. You can email him questions through our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. Or you can give him a call. The number to dial is 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Let's go to the phone lines right now. It's Becky who joins us. Hi, Becky. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. We had a contractor put in a new uh, tile floor. And now we find now that the tile... I, I I don't know. I just never paid much attention to the grout. They put in an off-white grout in this nice dark floor, and the grout now is showing dirt already. I need help. Yeah, it, it certainly will. That's an issue with any ceramic or quarry tile floor over time. That grout is going to attract the dirt, and it's going to look like dirt color, frankly, whether you put bad. white grout, gray grout. I've yep. had commercial clients, suge- I've suggested to them, and many have, why don't you just put black grout in to start with? Well, amen. Uh, if I had noticed, <laughs> I, that's what we'd have done. That's how it's going to end up. Now, I do have to ask you, maybe there's a, a little bit of a, a silver lining in here. Maybe not, but when they put the grout in, was the grout joint sealed, or did they simply put the grout so. in? I don't think so. Okay. Well, if, because if it was sealed, it wouldn't be this dirty this quick, would it? Well, it would still be dirty. What happens is the grout is not flush with the tile. So as you mop the floor, as we walk on the floor, vacuum the floor, yeah. it, it tends to collect dirt. True. If the grout joint is sealed, and that's a little bit like putting a sealer on your car or a wax on the floor. It, it prevents okay. things from, from permeating that. Right. If it's sealed, then the dirt is simply sitting on the surface. No, it's, okay, I don't but if think it, so. If it gets down in the grout, then it's a little more of a challenge. And uh, is this very old, meaning more than, you know, has it been down for no. a year or so? Uh-uh. A few this months? This was done in May. Okay. Then uh, you or uh, your household crew or someone may find you can salvage this, but it's going to take some elbow grease and some scrubbing with a brush to get down and to clean those grout joints to get them good and clean because you only have a few months of dirt residue on it. You don't have right. three or four years. Once you get them good and clean, again, let it dry thoroughly, get a grout sealer, and you'll be able to get that at most hardware stores if they sell floor tile or at your floor tile supplier. It's a grout sealer. It comes in a tube. Uh, you can roll it on. You don't have to paint it on these days with a brush. You can roll it on from the tube, and it will seal those joints. 
You're still going to find dirt collecting in the grout joints, though. This is just it's an, an inherent issue with ceramic and quarry tile, uh, but it is easier for you to clean up. Now, the alternative to that is just make a decision that you're going to go ahead and replace the grout joint and put black in. Now, I wonder what the cost of that is to get the grout out. Well, there are plenty of people around today, I'm sure, that would be happy to give you a price to do that if you don't want to be faced with a maintenance issue. I know in dealing with designers and individuals that make their own product and color selections, in my career this has always been an issue. It looks great when it first goes down. I mean, it's, it can be outstanding with the overall room decor and the color, but you have to think about the wear. So if you're in an area that receives a great deal of wear, let's say it's a door coming in from the garage, a, a, com- a, a common door into your kitchen, for example. Oh, everybody uses it. Yeah, and you're bringing all kinds of outdoor trash and debris in all seasons mm-hmm. of the year. That area probably, in my opinion, should not have a white grout. I know, it shouldn't. So I wish I had well, a better solution, you. but you've at least brought to air a few things for other people to think about. And in your right. case, I think you can get it resolved short-term with a little elbow grease and some scrubbing, get it sealed, and then you should be down to normal maintenance. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Becky, we do appreciate it. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken a couple different ways. You can give him a call at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or forward your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. And while you're at it, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at KenAnswers. Uh, let's take a, another email question, and uh, this one deals with rental properties, Ken. Lucille writes to us from Stafford, Virginia. Lucille listens to us on WKCW, 1420 AM out of Manassas. And Lucille, we certainly appreciate it. Now, you've got an investment question. Is rental property a good investment for a retiree? I've been offered a very good deal on a house I don't need. That's really an interesting way to put it, Lucille, on a house that you don't need. Let's talk a little bit about the rental side. First, rental property is not for everyone. It takes a certain disposition, attitude towards property, if you will, if you're going to own property and rent it out. You also need to be prepared for expenses that will, not may, but will come up when you least expect it. Also, you need to be in a situation where you can afford to maintain the house to keep it up inside and out when it's not occupied, meaning in between leases or tenants. And so there are a lot of things that go on here that most people don't think a lot about unless they're in this business. Once you're in it, sometimes it's learning through the school of hard knocks. And I'd prefer to see you learn because you have done some research on the front side. And that's the first thing I recommend to you or anyone looking to get into the rental property business. And I've been in it for many years, so I'm speaking from experience as well. Sit down and read as many books and articles and items as you can about owning rental property. Understand some of the pitfalls, the difficulties you may have in renting or leasing, the terms that you may not be able to get that you think you should, collecting rent, insurance, maintenance, how well people will maintain your property. In most cases, you may find they're not going to be maintained as if you lived in them, although there are many fine tenants out there, and I've been privileged to have an awful lot of them that do maintain the property quite well. So I just want you to understand that there can be some pitfalls and issues. It's not all a bed of roses where you own the property and the check comes to you every month, and that's the end of it. So you'll have to raise a lot of questions. You'll have to deal with insurance certificates on renter's insurance to be sure things are covered properly. The very best thing that I recommend to anyone owning rental property is that they hire a 
well-qualified, licensed, and insured property management company to handle that property. Allow them to go through the process of screening prospective tenants, whether it's obtaining credit reports, looking at criminal background checks, whatever you require of them. These are professionals that know what they're doing. And when you go through this process, you will find, as my management companies have, that we end up with very, very good, strong tenants that will help maintain the property, that have some interest in it, that pay their rents on time. They're good, upstanding citizens simply trying to do what's right, and this may be a good short-term shelter for them until they're able to settle based on their job or career or until they're able to buy or build their own home. So property renters and property owners have great opportunities to work together in this economy, and that's always been the case. But I want you to read and know what you're getting into before you accept this. You also have the property tax issues. You have so many other things that you have to deal with that will be yours even if you have no income. The bottom line, though, is if you have the right constitution for it, you have the mindset ready to go after it, my hat's off to you, and I commend anyone that wants to own property for rental purposes, whether it's residential or commercial, just know what you're getting into and be sure you have the dollars to maintain the downtime on the property, meaning there's no income for some period of time. I appreciate your writing. Thanks for listening to us. Don't forget, you can always forward your emails to Ken's website. That's KenTheContractor.com. And while you're there, check out Ken's toolbox. That's some of the things that we talk about most often on the show here, including energy efficiency, plumbing, windows, decks, roofs. Get a lot of roofing questions. It's all available online at one spot on the web, KenTheContractor.com. Or give us a call, 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. A house is what you build. A home is what you make it. And right now, it's time for this week's uh, segment in the news. Weekly Ken brings you products, trends, tips, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance, purchases, remodeling, and new construction. And today's in the news is all about a new product. And this is an award-winning product. It has just received the best in category for home and outdoor decor under the 2013 Housewares Design Awards. And the reason I bring this to you, not because the concept is new, but because I really like the product and it's new and how it operates. And this is called the Glower Wayfinding Illumination Disc. And you're saying, what are you talking about? Well, let me explain a little bit about this. It's a product manufactured by Home, uh, Handy Home Products, and it's called, as I said, the Wayfinding Illumination Disc and or numbers, address numbers for the outside of your house. Now, a little bit about the designers. When they approached this and they were coming up with a the concept, their intent in developing this was in hopes that people would look at safety around their home, whether it's on decks, around swimming pools, stairs, areas that you need some fall protection in, at least to highlight these areas without bringing electricity to the picture. That means no line voltage, no low voltage, no batteries, no bulbs, and you're saying then how can it illuminate it? They've provided a product that with only eight minutes of illumination will glow for 48 hours. That's pretty substantial. When you're looking at 911 numbers that have to be posted in many of our subdivisions on our house addresses today, and you're saying, well, over time, these other things fade, that we, we bought these numbers, you remember those, Jim, and they're good for six months or a year or so, and then they go away and they no longer glow in the dark. 
They're saying that these items with only eight minutes will be illuminated for 48 hours. So hopefully every day we've got some degree of sunlight, at least more than eight minutes to keep these things functioning properly. And they will glow all night long and they are anticipated to last for 25 years, not 25 days or two or three months. This is pretty phenomenal. So they're created, they've created house numbers for those of you requiring uh, numbers of certain sizes for 911 purposes, and what they're calling these discs, these wayfinding discs, are to be used around sidewalks, patios, decks, retaining walls, places that you want to have some nighttime boundary. You want to know what those limits are. So this is a pretty unique product. It's award-winning across the country, both disc and address numbers. It's produced by Handy Home Products, Inc. You can find out more about this by going to my website, kenthecontractor.com, and click on links. That's this week's edition of In the News, as Ken brings you products, trends, tips, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance, purchases, remodeling, and new construction. And let's go to the phones right now with Sandra. Hi, Sandra. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. I have several questions about our driveway. Okay. It, it is macadam. I guess it's black. I guess is that the correct term? Oh, uh, macadam, asphalt. I mean, asphalt. Those, are, those are terms that have been used for decades. Right. All right. Well, that's what we have. The surface has become very cracked and is disintegrating into grit, tiny stones, which we're bringing into our home on our shoes. What do we need to do to this? Well, what happens with asphalt over time is it dries out and it becomes brittle. Initially, when it's applied, it is a it is a soft product. You could pick it up even days after it's put down and you can bend it. And it's designed to have a little bit of give to it, a little bit of flex. But as it ages and the sunlight hits it and it weathers, it becomes as brittle as concrete or other structures. It's not forgiving anymore at that point, and that's why you see cracking in it. It also shrinks as it dries out, and then it has a tendency to fall apart as you get water under it and drive over it. The purpose of, of asphalt sealer, and people ask me about this from time to time, both on commercial and residential drives, is to keep a little bit of life in that asphalt. It keeps it so that it is not it does not become quite as brittle as what you're experiencing. What I could not assure you of, although this would help, would be that applying an asphalt sealer at this stage would actually do a great deal for you. It will probably help to some extent, but if the asphalt is that old and that brittle, it's not going to put life back in it again. It may help in terms of a surface treatment where you're, you're not seeing the aggregate come loose quite at the rate that it is today but you're not going to be putting number of years back into it. The other thing you need to think about, look at the cracks that are there, and certainly I would be applying an asphalt sealer. This is a joint compound. You can buy it at most department or hardware stores or big box stores. comes in a gallon container. It's got a, a funnel on the top of it or so, of sorts, and it's, it's ready-made just to turn upside down and to be able to fill these cracks. That will help you. The asphalt sealer will help you. But in the long run, I don't think you're going to get years and years of added life out of this. It may solve your aggregate problem. All right. The, the sealer, but is that, you're saying that's only applied in the cracks? No, the, the, I'm talking two things. One is a uniform sealer that would coat the entire the driveway. Thing. And we've had that done years ago. Okay, but that sealer is not going to fill these cracks. You still need oh. a pliable product, and it's an asphalt joint filler. Oh. And that's a generic term for it. It may be marketed under different name brands, but it's a liquid asphalt, and it will remain flexible. So as the, your driveway expands and contracts, it's not likely to separate. It'll do two things. One, it will help prevent water from getting between the asphalt and the base, and it will allow it to perform longer in that fashion. You won't be developing potholes or seeing it peel up as rapidly. 
So I would recommend that you find an asphalt sealer, not a a joint Joint, sealer. Joint sealer. And seal those joints first, and then you may want to come back over that with an asphalt sealer that you can roll on or squeegee on or have a professional applicator install over the entire driveway. That should help you with some of the aggregate issues, these fines that you're talking about. All right. Oh, the the cracks are so numerous, I'm not even (laughs) sure that uh, I'm... It sounds like it'd be quite a job. Well, it may be. If, if they're numerous and you have what many would call sort of an alligator look to that, right. then the asphalt really is beyond its useful life. And oh. you don't want to hear this, but the best you can do is replace it. Oh, all right. Now, does that mean like removing removing what we have now that's in bad shape? In, in most cases, when you have that kind of cracking, it's likely that it's not bonding to the surface below and it may not make for a stable base. I can't tell you that over the radio without seeing it, so what I would recommend is that you contact some people that do home driveways, get yourself two or three bids, All right. uh, inquire you know, from uh, references. You want to inquire and, and talk to people they've installed before, but let them look at it and inspect it and tell you whether they can go over it or whether this has to come up and then a new product go down. But what you don't want to do is spend a bunch of money for a new product on a bad base and have it all fall apart one or two years down the road. You've just wasted your money. Sandra, thank you. We do appreciate your call. Going to try to sneak a quick call in. Linda uh, wants to follow up on what we were talking about a little bit earlier with Becky about the grout and the tile. Linda, you're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Have the tile and I, with the grout. Okay. And mine has been sealed, but you know, in spots, it's getting dirty. Uh, what do I do with cleaning that? The same as you told the other lady? Or? Unfortunately, there's no substitution for a little brush and a little elbow grease because the grout again is lower than the surface of the floor. It's going to accumulate there. The difference, if the fact that you have sealed grout joints. That's going to release and come up quite easily. You just need to be able to get in that crevice. Okay. Now, just, uh, do I use a, a grout cleaner? No, you can use just an ordinary floor detergent. will be fine. Again, you're cleaning the same dirt out of the grout that you've cleaned off the top of the tile. Okay. Should I reseal it then? Uh, only if you really get uh, get into it and you're scrubbing that grout quite hard. Uh-huh. But uh, generally a sealer, if it's sealed well, uh-huh. it's going to hold up for many, many years. Yeah. Well, this was done back in 98, 99. Well, if it's performed for that period of time, I'd say you've gotten your money's worth. If you get the grout good and clean, you may want to go seal it again and then get another 10, 12, 15 years out of it. But if you seal over the dirt, it'll never come up. Okay. Yeah, right, right. Okay. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you for the call. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Linda. We do appreciate your call. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, at 800-614-2975. Reach him anytime at 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's here each week to answer the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. If you've got a question for Ken, you can email it to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com, or give him a call. The number to dial is 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And we've got uh, one of those questions from the website. Arnold listens to us on WEEU 830 AM in Reading, Pennsylvania. And Arnold, we appreciate you listening to the show. You've got a question of some interest to a lot of folks today, I think. Said, I've seen some pine boards cut by portable sawmills stacked outside to air dry that look perfectly straight. How come the kiln dried wood at the lumber yard is so crooked? Now this is a question, Arnold, that an awful lot of people ask. And I want to tell you in part, is because of how lumber is treated at so many lumber yards by 
the consumer, yes, that's you and me, and by the personnel that work there. And I, I mean this with all due respect, that lumber comes in stacked tightly in cubes. It's banded tightly together. You'll see it on trucks, and it looks very straight. What happens, though, once these bands are cut and you and I, the contractors and homeowners, go down and we start going through this looking for what we think is the nicer pieces of lumber that we, as we cull this, and that's what it's called, we simply cast some of the other things off to the side. We lay them off. They're sitting there, not straight anymore. They're not laying one on top of the other, but they're diagonaling sometimes across other members. They're allowed to twist and warp and cup. And that's one reason that we are compelled, if you're not the first in a stack, to go through and really do a lot of culling because a lot of this has been restacked at a later time, and now it's had opportunity to twist and cup and warp. So all of those characteristics come largely by handling, in fact, mishandling the lumber. Now, some of the problems that we see with lumber is just a characteristic of pine especially has to do with it drying. So a lot of the lumber yards are indoors. Those that are in air-conditioned space, like many of the big box stores, will be pulling more of the humidity out of the lumber. This also has an impact on it. pulls it out even faster than those lumber yards that have lumber stored outside but under just a roof shelter. Lumber has very unique characteristics. It responds to moisture in different ways. And the best thing that all of us can do, the lumber yards and you and I as a consumer, when we bring it home to work with it, is to always keep it stacked properly on something, a surface that's level so that it's straight. And at the same time, if you have multiple boards, stack one on top of the other and shove them up against a wall or keep them as tightly bound together as you can. Because anytime you give them room to move, for example, you have a board that hangs over the end of another one three or four feet, I promise you by the next day, you leave it overnight, that's going to sag, and you're going to find that's not the right kind of framing material that I want to put in my wall. So the best thing for all of us to do is just treat lumber with respect, keep it stacked, keep it square, and keep it out of direct rainfall if possible. Very good question, and I'm glad you raised it, and hopefully that will help all of us have a little more respect for what we're doing when we're dealing with lumber at the lumber yards, and secondly, when we bring it home to work with it. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your email. Very good. Thank you, Arnold. Don't forget, again, if you do want to email Ken, you can send it directly to our website, kenthecontractor.com. And while you're there, you can friend us on Facebook, at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. Time now for this week's uh, segment on universal living. And, Ken, I know we're going to deal with something today that pretty much everybody's got in their home. And if you're thinking about remodeling, I want you to give this consideration. And that's the shelves within our cabinets. Rollout shelves, not fixed or adjustable shelves. Now, the whole purpose behind universal design is so that Everyone in that house, regardless of age, regardless of height, regardless of disability or health situation, has access to products, and it's easy to use. The real feature about universal design when it comes to rollout shelves is that for absolutely everybody, this is something that makes it much more convenient. It allows you to utilize the space in these pull-out shelves much more efficiently. You can put heavier items in the back, lighter items in the front. You're not leaning or, or finding yourself crawling into these cabinets to pull these things out. Instead, you simply pull the shelf out. You access what you need. It's very easy, very functional. Now, don't just think about your base cabinets in the kitchen. Think about the pantries. Think about other areas, even in your bathrooms. If you have linen closets and things built in to cabinet work, these shelves 
shelves are universal and can be installed anywhere, and they can be installed on a retrofit basis if you don't have them now. Closet Made and others also make rollout for retrofit purposes, as well as many cabinet manufacturers. One other area you want to consider is that corner cabinet that could be wasted space. Get one of those Lazy Susans. Have that installed. You'll find you're not climbing way back into that corner, and now you're using all of the space that you paid for that you say is just dead. I can't access it. This is all part of this week's universal design. And let's fit another email in right here. This email question comes to us from Dave out of Reading, Pennsylvania. And Dave's doing some outdoor work. says, I'm building a freestanding deck around a pool. I'll be using 4 by 4 posts around the perimeter every 4 feet. What size joist should I use? The deck will be 16 feet by 15 feet. Should I use joist hangers? And is it okay to use screws instead of nails? Well, Dave, sounds like you've got a couple of things to be working on over the next few weekends anyway. But let me start on the back side of your question and work our way forward. First, it's always fine to use screws as long as you're using the proper screws. Now, it's important to determine that you're using the correct size of screw or nail for those of you that may choose to build a similar deck and use nails. Don't use something that's undersized or wrong. And if you have any questions about it, in most cases, you can consult the hardware store or the fastener provider, and they will tell you what it's rated for and whether it's a framing or a trim nail or whether it's rated to be used in a shear connection uh, versus other types. Anyway, screws will be fine to put these together with. Now, to go back to your question on the 4x4 post, in many locations, I have to tell you this, in many locations around the country, the local code requires that either an architect or an engineer design, sign, and seal plans for any deck construction. So the very first thing I want you to do, though, is to be sure you have checked with the local building officials before you start doing any construction. Because if you build this and they find out about it and you needed a permit, they can make you tear it down so you will have wasted your time and your money and then go through the permit process after they have fined you and perhaps double feed the permit because of that. A whole lot of heartburn comes into play if you try and do things without permits when they are required. Not everywhere in the country, but most places. So I want you to check on that first. Now, to deal with the joy size, the IRC, the International Residential Code, offers joy sizes based on spans and loads for ordinary residential construction. If this is ordinary residential loads and you're not doing anything unique on top of it uh, and the columns and rim joist or boards are no more than four feet apart, I will tell you that a two-by-six joist should be sufficient. However, you need to go back again and first consult your building department, see if they require a design professional to be involved, and then also consult the IRC to be sure that's right in your particular area. And as the spans increase, meaning your columns move further apart or the connecting points, the bearing points are further than four feet apart, the depth of the joist will also need to increase. Joist hangers, you ask about, are always recommended if the joists are placed within the face of the support beams or girders as opposed to having them sit on top. So the bottom line is you can do this yourself. And with the basic information I've given you, you should be on the right track. But first, check with the local building officials. When you're doing that, check with your zoning department and be sure that what you're doing and where you're doing it meets zoning criteria in your area. And then follow what they're telling you as far as the need for a professional. Or if you can do it yourself, at least consult the IRC and see what the joy spans are for your region. 
good luck to you, and I hope you have a great outdoor project over the next several days. And that'll wrap up this edition of Ken the Contractor. For Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt, and thanks for joining us this week. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.